Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. Today's episode is an interview that I did recently on Psychedelics Today. I was in my car, I guess probably three or four weeks ago, listening to Psychedelics Today, and they had a very interesting interview with a man named Will Hall, who is a therapist and author and podcaster. And they introduced him as someone who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, had been in and out of psychiatric hospitals earlier in his life, and then had recovered. And I was completely transfixed because I love a good healing story, as you all know. But as the interview progressed, it became clear that um, Will was part of what we call the psychiatry survivors or anti-psychiatry movement. And he launched into a two-part, almost three-hour diatribe against psychiatry. And so I wrote the host of Psychedelics Today and asked that um, there be some balance. And so they invited me to do an interview, which was published last week on their podcast. And I asked if I could run it on this podcast, and they happily agreed. So on the two-part Psychedelics Today interview with Will Hall, He argued that psychiatry is broken, that it needs to be replaced. He argued against the medicalization of psychedelics. He called into question the very existence of psychiatric illness, wondering, for example, if psychotic breaks were actually, quote-unquote, spiritual emergencies. He suggested that psychiatrists are in bed with the drug companies and don't actually understand or even care about the risks of their treatments. He posited that mental illness is largely a way to label and control people especially lower-income and non-white populations. Will had many, many criticisms, but no meaningful vision for realistic change. In this interview with Psychedelics Today, I try to present a more nuanced, balanced, and hopeful perspective. One that recognizes the harm that psychiatrists and other physicians have caused in the past and continue to cause today, while also asking that we try to lean into the positive to identify and celebrate what works for people, to reject the black-white thinking that calls for tearing down systems which are, by their very nature, messy and imperfect, just as we humans are messy and imperfect. A final note. Just before recording this, I got a phone call from my dear friend Colin Chisholm, who's a therapist and had heard this interview on Psychedelics Today a couple days ago. He pointed out very accurately that I was unfair in my assessment of talk therapy for trauma. At one point in the following interview, I mentioned that neither psych meds nor talk therapy generally do much of anything to address deep trauma. And I hereby ask to retract that statement, as I do think talk therapy can help traumatized people, particularly in the realms of rebuilding trust and connection and working through shame-based narratives. So thanks, Colin, for keeping me accurate and honest. I hope you all enjoy this interview. So I think I think we did a reasonable enough amount of background, um, but you're you are attached to the MDMA phase three study that maps this yeah, in Fort Collins. Yeah, I've been working over the last three years with the Fort Collins site with the maps maps. Great. Three. So that was phase two as well because phase three just started somewhat recently. Yeah, this well, actually was all phase three that I've been part of, oh. and then and then I do a ton of ketamine work. I do most mostly IV. I used to do. Three, three and a half years ago, I did more IM, but mostly now intravenous, um, high-dose, fully dissociative ketamine, probably doing mm, 12 to 15 sessions of that a week, along with my regular practice. Mm. All right. And that's it's, it's somewhat, uh, 
I don't want to call it standard psychiatry, like integrative psychiatry kind of approach. Yeah. I don't, you know, it's interesting that, um, that's a hot phrase, integrative psychiatry, which in my mind, that means good psychiatry, because if my sense is, if you're doing good psychiatry, you're very concerned about sleep and relationships and trauma history and diet and exercise and sun exposure and medical history. And I mean, you're concerned with all that, I think, if you're doing good psychiatry. So I think the whole, you know, quote unquote, integrative psychiatry is a response to, you know, the over emphasis with a lot of psychiatry on just meds, which, you know, that's a whole separate issue. But yeah, I don't call myself an integrative psychiatrist, but I would like to think that's what I'm doing because I'm trying to look at it from all angles. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, how do we take a holistic approach? This has kind of been the trajectory for a lot of us who are, I guess, thinking people in, yeah. in the world. Like how do we, yeah, not, not miss important factors mm-hmm. and yeah, it's a careful attention to detail, like a lot of reading mm-hmm. and that's how we, you know, evolve this thing. <laughs> it's unfortunately a very slow project, but I think we're making yeah. progress. Yeah. All right. So you emailed me probably right after listening to the first, uh, recent Will Hall episode. Two minutes um, I think you said that. you pulled over yeah. twice <laughs> while listening to it. Yeah. 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 So I was in my car listening to the first Will Hall episode and I was thrilled at first because I thought, oh, this is a story of recovery and healing. And this is a guy who had terrible psychiatric illness, schizophrenia, and he's writing books and he's so eloquent and he's so intelligent. And so I was transfixed at first. And then he starts in on the, um, really on the the whole anti-psychiatry thing. And I thought, oh, you know, he's such a smart, interesting guy. And I'm sure he's been through some horrible stuff with um, the psychiatry of 20, 30 30 years ago. And, but then as it progressed, I realized, no, this was a full on... (laughs) assault on a teammate. And let me, let me explain that. I, th- I often think of mental health treatment, like we're all on a, we're all on a soccer team, you know, the breath workers and the trauma therapists and the marriage therapists and the priests and the life coaches and the psychiatrists, psychologists, we're all on this team and we are, we're playing this brutal, brutal team, the mental illness and psychological despair team. And they're they're a handful. They've got meth on their team. They've got schizophrenia on their team. They have childhood sexual abuse on their team. They have crack cocaine. and They have this endless onslaught of stuff that's coming at us. And it's all we can do as a mental health team to try to head it off. So when I heard Will speak, I thought, this is the post-game press conference where the midfielder is going on TV and saying, oh yeah, it's the goalies. Because the thing of the goalies, yeah, they they play by their own rules with their funny shirts and, you know, they can touch the ball and they yell at the defenders. And, you know, we don't need them. In fact, we would have a much better game if we could just dump goalies. And, you know, when when he said, I, I feel we should replace psychiatry with something else, I'm thinking, all right, wh- what is it? And he had nothing, nothing. You know, he said, well, we should love and connect and talk. And I, and I said, yes. And to me, that would be like the midfielder saying, oh, we should pass and be fit and we should be a coordinated, you know, attack and we should, you know, defend their most serious strikers. And I'm saying, yes. But the fact is in this game, people break through the back lines and they're coming at me, 
the psychiatrist, the goalie, and they're blasting stuff at me. They're blasting their shots. They're throwing their bodies at me. And that's, you know, suicidal people, people threatening to kill their family members, people cutting themselves up with with razor blades, people who are threatening to go out and spray bullets downtown, people are hearing command hallucinations to sexually assault. I mean, the horrible stuff that's blasting through the back lines. And so I'm listening to Will and I'm thinking, really? So we should just dump the goalies and, and just let everyone else in the field fight this horrendous team. So part of me kind of thought, okay, well, let's see how that goes. But I would know how that goes because Every day in my office, I see what happens, you know, when, when all the hardworking other people on the mental health team are not able to stop what's coming. And it's scary and it's life-threatening often and it's, it's terrible. Mm. And, you know, I think, I think I speak for other psychiatrists when I say we would like nothing more for there to be more love and connection and, and healthier food and less institutional racism and just all the good stuff in society. And we want that. And if fewer people broke through the back lines and were shooting their aggressive, scary shots at us, that would be fantastic because we, we have enough on our hands. So, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm all about trying to make mental health treatment better. Clearly mental health treatment in the United States has huge problems. Psychiatry has major problems. But I think this sort of pan-negative critique, I think too, it, it really hit me because in 2020, I mean, every, it's the news is bad and you can't breathe the air and there's fires and political stuff and pandemic and economic collapse. And so to just listen to, you know, whatever it was, two and a half hours of the two episodes, just completely cutting the knees out on a mental health teammate which is me and everyone else in psychiatry. And, you know, I understand that psychiatrists have hurt people. You know, one of um, one of my dearest friends is a ER doc. And he said once, he said, you know, the decision which specialty to pick in medicine, it's really about what kind of pain are you willing to inflict on other people? And I thought that was kind of a weird statement, but he, I think there's something to that. And here's the thing, the pain that psychiatrists inflict on people, the the most painful thing we do is we put people in the hospital against their will. And that has been overused terribly all around the world. It's been used to imprison people politically. It's people have been given false diagnoses and held in the hospitals forever. In the U.S., it's been used terribly over the decades. I imagine in some parts of the U.S., some places it's still used inappropriately. But it also, in general, what I've seen is it saves lives. I mean, you know, when we put people in the hospital against their will, we're not taking it lightly. And I'm guessing that happened to Will and some of the other anti-psychiatry folks. And I feel badly for them. I'm sure they were hurt by it. And, you know, and the fact is, you know, somatic therapists hurt people and teachers hurt people and and dentists hurt people. I mean, we we all are fallible. And I just I just want to, put out a message you know, to all the listeners here that there are, there are amazing things happening in mental health treatment. There are serious problems in our lack, in our system and in psychiatry itself. But let's, let's move forward and be teammates and help each other and not have a pan sort of um, negativism, negativism, just shut it all down. Um, it's just not, it's not in, 
it's not helpful. And I think in 2020, which is one of the more depressing years we've had in a long time, it's, it's just so grim. And I just, you know, at one point I, uh, when I pulled over and was listening to Will talk, I thought, do you have anything positive to say? Do you have anything hopeful? And, um, I didn't hear anything hopeful except, you know, he said, stop the drug war, which I say, yeah, amen. Let's do that. But I don't know. I, I um, really appreciated that you responded so quickly to my email and gave me the chance to, you know, spread the word that, hey, we know, we, meaning psychiatry, we know we've got changes to make and that there are problems, but sort of a pan dismissal of uh, we need to go and some mysterious thing needs to replace us. Uh, I mean, again, I'm willing to listen, but I haven't heard anybody say what that is. <laughs> Right. It's, um, you know, I guess my, it's two, twofold here. Like, I, I think this is always just a march of development in technology. Mm-hmm. You know, like how many times did your Apple computer give you that like rainbow wheel of death or whatever, and <laughs> blue screen of death on your PC. And like, you know, like I would have <laughs> my new computer, like barely blue screens anymore. Like it's kind of crazy, but it took till 2020 from, you know, the 1980s for this to happen, you know, medicine is often a little bit slower than the research coming out. Like, yes, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of research journals and, but that doesn't necessarily mean the doctors are are reading everything and trying to implement everything because they've been practicing for so long for on, you know, one method or one way of doing things. And it's kind of hard to adapt to new data like every single day because there's so much research happening. Yeah. Well, even, and I think, yeah, there's so much I have to say on that, but one thing is even the words we use to describe things in psychiatry are so vague. So let's, let's just say depression. So I did a podcast episode where I, I looked at, um, this whole idea of the syndrome of depression. And what I mean by that is, you know, depression is not a disease like, you know, like multiple myeloma or pancreatitis. It's, it's a syndrome. It's a final common pathway. You can get there a thousand different ways. So, but when we talk about treating depression, it's such a, just that phrase is so complicated because depression is so complicated. And even when we say, well, would psilocybin help with depression or would MDMA help with depression? To me, the, the, the underlying question is, well, what kind of depression are you talking about? What sort of ideology? You know, a, a depression that's coming out of trauma. Yeah. MDMA might be an effective way to address that. So, um, these, these terms are batted around and, you know, some of the anti-psychiatry folks, you know, all, all over us because they, oh, you know, you're calling, you're pathologizing everything and giving it disease names. And, but I, I think, you know, people, those of us who work in mental health know anxiety, depression, um, psychosis, these are syndromes. They're not, they're not diseases. They don't tell you anything about how the person got there. And that's, that to me is the beauty, challenge, and mystery of mental health and psychiatry is to try to unpeel those layers and figure out, well, someone is presenting with this kind of emotional despair, but why? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is that you know, la- last couple of years, I've really shifted how I think about trauma and how trauma um, plays out in the psychiatric realm. So it turns out that I would argue that 
psychiatry has two things it just has not ever really addressed well. And so the first would be negative symptoms of schizophrenia. And the second would be trauma. Almost none of the psychiatric meds do anything for trauma. Talk therapy doesn't really work for trauma. And it really seems like the only thing that works for trauma are the somatic kind of therapies. But those are, you know, those can take years to really get to these deep wells of trauma that sort of lie at the interface of the spirit and the body. And this, all this exciting stuff now that's coming with, you know, psychedelics and what might that do? And it's seeming like one of the things that psychedelics, at least some of them might do in some people is allow us to dip down, whether you want to call it the primary consciousness or chi or the soul or spirit, but bring us down to the interface of the body and the spirit where trauma lies and where talk therapy and traditional psych meds can't touch it. And again, you can get there through different therapies, but it takes a long time. But what we're seeing, what I'm seeing is that you can access that, that haunting, if you will. I really think in my mind, that's what trauma, deep trauma is a haunting. It is a, it's a kind of spiritual possession of the body, not in sort of a Casper the ghost thing, but it's, it's a, it's a pervasive um, spiritual wound, you know, as Laura Northrup calls it on her podcast. So at one point, Will in this, his episode said um, that uh, he said, I'm not sure psychedelics should be in the realm of medicine and science. And I, <laughs> I've never stopped. I made a little voice memo, memo on my phone. What does that even mean? Of course, psychedelics should be in the realm of medicine and in the realm of spiritual growth and of connecting with other people and connecting with nature and should be all of those things. But why would we say it shouldn't be in the realm of medicine if we can help people heal what what I think has been one of the two most untouchable things in, in mental health, which is how do we get to trauma? How do we actually touch trauma and move it? And, you know, I'm seeing that in the MDMA study. I'm seeing that in my ketamine work every day that you can touch those places that before were essentially untouchable and you can do it right away. You don't have to wait years. Are you seeing others in, in psychiatry? Like, I feel I feel that Colorado, California are kind of um, a little special. Like, we've got a lot mm-hmm. of people like like yourself and Scott Shannon and many others mm-hmm. who are kind of informed on this stuff. Are you seeing others in psychiatry, like, be interested in these somatic techniques and or are people kind of dismissing of them? Yeah. Well, here's, here's a good example. So I... I've called and talked to a number of other psychiatrist colleagues and friends in Northern Colorado and beyond. And I've said, you have to start using ketamine in your practice. It will blow your mind. It will change your life and the lives of your patients. And um, what most of them have said is, oh yeah, ketamine, that's so interesting. I'm way too busy. I just, I'm totally overwhelmed trying to do what I'm doing. And I've told them like, look, you will hospitalize many fewer people. You you could see people walk in your office suicidal, ready to die. And within 12 hours, the hope is returning. And what I'm hearing from most people, and I've talked to a lot of people, is not that they don't think it's very interesting and, and helpful, but they're just like, man, I'm so busy. I don't even have time. And I even had a psychiatrist friend fly out from California, spend a day with me and watching ketamine sessions. And she said, oh, it's so cool, but man, I'm so busy. I don't even know how I would do this. So... Yeah, I haven't heard anything negative along those lines. I, I think 
going, going back to my metaphor of the soccer team, I think they're just, especially in 2020, we're just being shellacked here in the goal with so much pain that I think a lot of psychiatrists are just trying to keep their head above water, which is, I think they would much more enjoyably keep their head above water if they would use ketamine in their practices. (laughs) I I do. It's, yeah, I, I think I say that to my medical assistant all the time. I can't even remember, like, how did I treat people severely depressed and suicidal people before ketamine? Like, what did I do? And I think the answer was hospitalized way more people. What did that do? Well, you know, ostensibly kept them safe for a few days. I, people were on a lot more meds, but the main thing is people were just suffering much more. I mean, I have a whole crew of people now who are doing what we call maintenance ketamine who come in every month and do an IV. And these are, these were some of my most depressed, poorly functioning people before. And now they come in and do their monthly treatment and it keeps them above water. It keeps them out of suicidality. It's, it's, it's so gratifying. It's, it's amazing. I don't know why I wish everybody in psychiatry would get on board, but yeah, I, I, luckily, as I said, I'm not hearing negative comments about it. Mostly just, Oh, that's cool. You're doing that. We're too busy to, (laughs) to get on board. I have a friend who's a palliative care doc and she's known me for years, been really like, (laughs) um, we were a little standoffish around the psychedelic topic for a while. Mm -hmm. And, um, at a certain point, (laughs) um, cause she's seeing people die regularly and, you know, like probably a great research site for palliative care stuff, like mushrooms and Mm -hmm. palliative care or something. And (laughs) at a certain point, she's like, what do you expect me to do? Feed them drugs, feed them these drugs, prescribe it and, and be there the whole time. That's crazy. I can barely get through my day as it is. And I, I think there's something about the structure of our medical system that Mm -hmm. is, probably the root problem here. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know what, how to actually name it even. Yeah. Um, but it's like under-resourced is probably the best yeah. word. Yeah. Well, I think I'll, I'll name it. I think at least psychiatric care in the United States has three, let's call it door number one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. Door number one is what I'm doing, which is uh, non-insurance practice. Um, I mean, I slide my scale for a lot of people, but I don't take insurance. I meet with people as long as I want to. I have a bunch of people that I do hour-long long-term therapy with. I do hour and a half ketamine. So I, I get to do what I want. And then, and those people, uh, and I think psychiatrists, you probably on this podcast are more in that realm. But then behind door number two is a big group. And I know this is part of when the anti-psychiatry people are talking, they're talking a lot about door two and three. Door two are all the psychiatrists who are working with uh, insurance, um, doing quote-unquote med checks, which are these 15 to 20-minute symptom-based visits, which I don't know how anything meaningful could come up in those. And those are cheaper. The people using those, are, surprise, surprise, are people with fewer resources generally. And you know they're not getting as good a care because they're really getting symptom management. And then behind door number three is the mental health care, I'm sorry, the mental health center center system where local and county mental health centers are working with largely indigent people, very few resources. A lot of mental health centers are largely staffed by PAs and nurse practitioners because that's cheaper and not that they're not competent, but it's just, it is a resource thing. So yeah, in, in America, 
like with a lot of things, it's uh, what are you willing to pay for? I mean, that's not the mm-hmm. way it is in most countries, but we, we really do have a three part system and that they're very different, each part of the psychiatric doors. Mm. Right. It's like a big landscape with so much diversity that mm-hmm. it's really, and you know, yeah, like that, that door three, huge spectrum mm-hmm. there too. Mm-hmm. Like from, you know, some think like a New York city situation mm-hmm. versus like Akron, Ohio or something yeah. like there's, I know some amazing people that work, you know, in the door number three right. County and local mental health. I mean, they have just, I mean, and so I'm not trying to, it's not them. on the individuals, I mean, actually, right? It's like the no, situation they amazing. find themselves in. Yeah. To me, they're like inner city public school teachers. Yeah. Like what they're being asked to do is impossible. You know, with the resources and how sick people are and and how uh, under-resourced their population is. You know, most of the mental health centers in America, yeah, they're like or inner city public schools. And so the people that are working there, I mean, I have only so much admiration for them. And... And I think too, if they were listening to this conversation, they would, I'm guessing they would say, oh, ketamine, fascinating, or MDMA, wow, that's really cool. And then they would just have to get back to their totally packed day with so many difficult people coming in the door who don't have the resources to even access treatment. And they're trying to figure out how to keep people alive. Right. Yeah. It's a very different world. And mm-hmm. um, something something I'm picking up on, I want to mention, um, like the... <laughs> <sighs> this idea of the psychedelics being a single bucket, it's mm-hmm. kind of complicated, right? Like there's many classes of psychedelics, you know, like we, yeah. I like to, I like the term classical psychedelics a mm-hmm. lot. It's, I find it helpful. I don't know that it means too much. It's just like, this is two different kinds of drugs versus like the, you know, 15 possible classes of mm-hmm. psychedelic uh, drugs that could what um, instantiate psychedelic experience like ketamine and mm-hmm. MDMA. Mm-hmm. Cause like, you know, these are non-classical psych drugs, non-classical psychedelic drugs that do in some situations instantiate psychedelic experiences and the mechanism of action. Is so different. I feel like mm-hmm. psilocybin will be a lot spookier for a lot longer than mm-hmm. ketamine and MDMA. Mm-hmm. Though sp- I'm sure spooky shit happens with both of those drugs too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, at one point too, kind of going back to this idea that psychedelics shouldn't be in the realm of medicine and science, mm-hmm. as Will said, I mean, I couldn't disagree more because there's so, there's so much we need to study. So let's just look at ketamine. We don't know whether people benefit more from a fully dissociative treatment or a sub-dissociative treatment. I mean, I, th- I think a lot of people who work with ketamine are pretty sure that fully dissociative ketamine is more effective for treating severe depression, suicidality, and severe PTSD. But that's not that's being studied now, but we don't know. We don't know what the optimal dosing strategy is. We don't know. We don't even know if integration after ketamine is necessary for everyone. My sense is, like so many things, it's probably helpful for some people and not necessary for others. And I see that with my ketamine patients that some people in their ketamine sessions, really intense childhood stuff comes up and, and that catalyzes some powerful psychotherapy. And other people, a lot of other people just leave and they say, wow, that was just fucking weird. And then they leave, you know, right. and then they text me two days later and they say, I feel so much better. Thank you. Hmm. So there's just so many, and they're really interesting questions. Uh, and, and I think Will mentioned was, 
that, oh, we're all hung up on molecules and neurochemistry and wiring. But that stuff is fascinating because it lets me just use one example. So now we know the serotonin 2A receptor that's crucial for tryptamine psychedelic effect. And if you block that, like with a psychiatric med, you will have no experience with psilocybin or LSD or DMT. Right. How interesting, how interesting is that? Like I saw it firsthand, like 14 grams with this one woman yeah. <laughs> in Jamaica and like near zero effect. It's crazy. Yeah. Right. And so, so by studying, you know, the serotonin 2A receptor, we're not claiming to know all, but you know, Will was talking about, we need to do more experiential kind of studies and phenomenal, phenomenological. That's awesome. But I think we should be doing it on every end. We, and by studying receptor subtypes, you're funding's not going... barely there. Is the kind of the crux, right? <laughs> like, yeah, you can yeah. barely get funding to do the straight research. Not never mind yeah. like the humanistic yeah. stuff. Yeah, I guess where I'm trying to, I'm trying to explain that. I think the we may we may never understand the mind brain connection fully, but don't we want to try? Right. Like I want people to keep going and hunting. Like I don't, mm-hmm. I don't personally never, I, I, I don't hold out hope that I'm going to see like the real answer in my lifetime, but I want mm-hmm. people to keep working on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Like, I, <laughs> you know, we're, we're kind of heavily groff focused here. So we're mm-hmm. always like, you know, eh, <laughs> I don't think we're going <laughs> to necessarily ever find it, but you know, it mm-hmm. doesn't mean we should stop. Um, mm-hmm. cause the more we know, the more we know and the more mm-hmm. we can help people. Yeah. But it, you know, it's also disappointing for us in, in this more kind of depth psychology landscape to see that this stuff is barely getting researched at all. Like mm-hmm. when was the last paper published on like etiology of depression, you know, like that was actually really meaningful. Mm-hmm. Like that's yeah. probably, probably a while back. Yeah. Like yeah. Etio- did you ever hear this uh, interview grafted with uh, Tim Ferriss? It was like three hours long. I did hear that. Yeah, that was really interesting. Yeah, like I, I appreciated Groff's candor and saying like, I, I just really want etiology researched in like the, the kind of Freudian sense mm-hmm. of how mm-hmm. Freud was doing it. Now we have a tool, like <laughs> psychedelics, mm-hmm. that would actually make it more feasible than, than what Freud was doing. Right. Even just to sort of answer the question, is there trauma? Because, you know, we're finding with, you know, ayahuasca work, a lot of tr- psychedelic work that, People are, some people are going to these sessions and, you know, their conscious brain is saying, oh yeah, there's no trauma. And we're finding out there's some serious trauma yeah. that's just underneath the surface. And again, if we don't know that, how can we get to the roots of anything? I mean, that's not to say that all depression is trauma related. I've heard some people claim that, oh, depression always rises out of trauma. That's not true. I think often, you know, very often, but not, not always, but, you know, almost like we use a, uh, you know, CT scan to see what's happening in your innermost self. It'd be interesting to think of using psychedelics as sort of a psych- uh, psychological diagnostic tool to say, hmm, is there depression in there? I mean, I'm sorry, is there trauma in there? And there might be like, oh, actually, wow, you have a pretty healthy attachment style and you have love and calm and connection and that's awesome. Let's move on. Yeah. Or, or not. And I, I was chatting with somebody just uh, earlier this week and, and <laughs> their def, their uh, label on ayahuasca was diagnostic tool. And I'm mm. like, you know, yeah, I think mm-hmm. traditionally for sure. And I, mm-hmm. I, I totally agree that this could be used really skillfully 
for diagnosis mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. root cause analysis kind of stuff. Yeah. Like why I mean, are now, you doing I, that? Yeah. I've worked with people for years, years before it came to the surface that there was significant trauma. Mm. And, you know, sometimes because people don't want to talk about it, but a lot of times because it's just very buried and it's recontextualized and people have come up with a non-trauma narrative about trauma, mm. which, which might help them cope in the here and now, but does not, you know, does not get to this deep, you know, haunting. I, I also have this image of trauma as like pus, you know, and surgery. I always talk about the pus has to come out no matter where pus pocket is in the body, you got to drain it. Mm-hmm. And I really think about that with especially childhood trauma, like it, it has to come out. And you know, we see that in my office regularly with you know fully dissociated ketamine sessions. People come in and you know, if they don't have big childhood trauma, it doesn't come out. But you know, I, I've now realized I have to give people a little FYI um warning, like, hey, let's just really talk a little bit about childhood trauma and what we're looking at, what might be there, because that very well might come bubbling up at the end of one of the sessions. Mm. Again, very diagnostic and and oftentimes a great springboard for therapy. Because yeah, I really think ketamine I'm seeing has, it has therapeutic value in and of itself. It's doing a number of things to the brain to dial down severe depressive symptoms and suicidality. But it's also a catalyst. I mean, it also, particularly for trauma, it can bring those deep wells to the surface where they can start to be addressed, you know, in integration or psychotherapy, whatever you want to call it. And it's like a twofold bonus you get, um, especially for folks with trauma who are doing ketamine, which is, um, that's a good question. Maybe, maybe half my people doing maintenance ketamine have a pretty significant trauma history. Mm. That's interesting. So one of, I forget if we touched this already, so steer me in the right direction if we did, but like um, this idea of, you know, we got to potentially just scrap psychiatry, Mm -hmm. create something new. You mentioned that Will didn't really offer anything new. Mm -hmm. Like what, what would, where would you like say, yes, we have problems in psychiatry for sure. We've, we've established Mm -hmm. that. Like people know that, like what, what would be some things that you could think of that that could help maybe accelerate us from this? Like, like t- let's take funding, <laughs> uh, both on the um, clinical end, like the clinic end, and then on the research end as a as a for granted. But like, is there things beyond that? Mm-hmm. Well, part of the reason that door number two, door number three, those mm-hmm. types of psychiatry exist because there's such a shortage, not just of funding, but of actual psychiatrists. There's right. a huge shortage. So. You know, and I've talked about this in other venues, but, you know, if everybody was doing what I'm doing, oh my gosh, that there'd just be complete lack of services. Because, you know, I see a lot of people for half hour, hour longer, and so many psychiatrists don't do that, which I think is A, not great care, but B, allows them to serve a lot more people. And there is such a shortage of folks. And that's that's been true for years and it's getting worse. So, but I also think too, psychiatry is very, um, we're very cut off, not just from the rest of medicine, but even from the rest of our mental health teammates. And that's why I often think of this metaphor that we're all on this team, but we're the goalies, like we're wearing these funny jerseys and we're in the back and we have different rules and we're on the team, but we're also, we, 
we have weird rules and we do strange things and we're key to the team, but we're not really doing what everybody else is doing. So there is a, there's a level of isolation in psychiatry, which is not good. And I'm a perfect example. I work alone in my office on on Mountain Avenue. And, you know, I, I do collaborate with a lot of people, but I, and that's one of the reasons I was really excited to come on here is to, it's just to talk and network and put the word out. And again, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, with my podcast, I, I want people to hear that healing is possible. And I want people to hear about the different cool things happening in mental health treatment and psychiatry. And, and let's emphasize the positive and do more of that. So I, I really, I like this idea of let's um, lead by attraction. Let's focus on what's working. Um, because in, inevitably the people, everybody working in mental health wants to help people. And so, but yeah, I wish that I don't think there are any easy answers for how to change psychiatry because in some ways psychiatry is, has, has uh, fallen into this three-pronged system because that's, that's the way it has to be with the shortage of people and with, you know, how unhealthy our society is. And yeah, mm-hmm. I, don't, I, I don't have any brilliant <laughs> answers there. Right. Um, so it seems like it, it, honestly, it seems like a resource question. Like we, we have a problem. Like, uh, I, th- I think there's something about a lot of MDs not wanting to go into psychiatry. I don't, I don't know mm-hmm. exactly why it's maybe not as mm-hmm. sexy as doing knee replacements or <laughs> heart mm-hmm. surgery or something. Well, but I think what, I think one of the reasons that I hear this a lot is um, that psychiatry is so kind of mysterious. And, you know, one of my best friends has said, uh, he's an interventional cardiologist. And he said, why do you want to be a psychiatrist? Like, they don't understand their diseases. They don't understand their meds. Brain's a mystery. It's all black box. Like, why would you ever want to do that? And uh, to me, that's what's so interesting about it, is that there is so much mystery and there's it gets to the heart of who we are because, um, you know, if you have a toenail fungus or dysfunctional kidney or hardening of your aorta, I think we can all say, well, that's just a part of me. That's not me. But if you have something wrong with the way you think, feel, or perceive, or your emotions, I mean, what's more core to us than that? And also what's more mysterious than that? So I I was drawn to that from the get-go. But I think a lot of medical students are very... Mm. they're very concrete and they like systems and they like if you can put input a and b and get c and d and predict that they like that and psychiatry is not that way (sighs) it would be lovely if we can get there but i I think it like in a lot of ways groff was right about etiology we haven't spent that time Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah, it seems like yeah, there there needs to be more attraction. Like, how do we actually make psychiatry more interesting? I think psychedelics is the answer to that, honestly. Like, I do, yeah, I had, I do too. Because even I have a med student rotating with me now from CU uh, Denver, and she doesn't want to be a psychiatrist, but the whole ketamine thing's been super fascinating for her. Yeah. And she said, "Hey, she said some of my other med student classmates want to come rotate with you. They want to see this ketamine thing." Yeah. So yeah, I think. Because even my kids, I have three daughters. They've said, Dad, I can't believe you just get paid to go talk to people. That's just so <laughs> weird. Like that's all you do all day is just talk to people, which was largely what I was doing. But now uh, I talk to people and then we give them eye shades and music and a blanket. And then we send them you know, 
into the eighth dimension of ketamine. Right. So, and then they come out and, and then it's like, I step into my shaman role and it's, it's fascinating. Again, even people who aren't particularly interested in mental health or psychiatry, I think can get really interested in this idea that you can give someone a, a powerful mind changing substance that can allow them to access parts of themselves that they didn't even realize were there. Yeah. Like where, where else in medicine is that kind of like mystery, you know, like it's yeah. so yeah. fascinating. I think the one other place it is, is in hospice care and palliative work. Totally. Because everything is really real and in the moment when, when you're approaching death. Yeah. And I've often thought if I couldn't do psychiatry, I would want to be a hospice doctor because it's so, it's just so real and it's so important and it's so hard and it's, and it's so mysterious, you know, what, what's happening, what's going to, it's just, it's the great unknown, which, you know, that's what we're dealing with too. The mind is the great unknown. Right. Right. Yeah. Like the fact that there are mysteries left, big mysteries. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like what one of my favorite things about psychology in general is that there's no like real shared consensus theory even mm-hmm. <laughs> like so many different branches everywhere and like the you know the number one field really is behaviorism largely like cbt mm-hmm. cbt mm-hmm. seems to get all the dollars for some reason yeah right but right they're all models right yeah, you know, internal family systems and psychodynamics and cognitive behavioral and dialectic behavior. Yeah, there are all these interesting models of the mind and the way we function and dis- go into fit dysfunction. And uh, But I love that too. I just, again, I often think of the different types of therapy, like like when you go to the optometrist and they flip the little things, like, is this better or this one? This or this or this? And to me... You know, when I'm sitting with my patients, I have probably four or five you know, main models of of psychotherapy that I think about, and so I'm thinking in my mind like I'm I'm literally kind of flipping different lenses, thinking, like, hmm, is this a psychodynamic kind of case, or is this more of like an existential thing, or mm. can we do some straight up CBT with this person? And that that's very overwhelming and scary at first when you're learning all those, but once you have two or three or four things in your tool belt. It's, it's fun to sit there. But again, they're just models. They're not real. They're, they're models of something unknowable. Right. Yeah. (laughs) To this point in history, unknowable. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Hopefully someday. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So were there other critiques of the, of the will episode you wanted to raise? Yeah. You know, he, he was talking about the MDMA study, um, MAP study, and he said, you know, why don't we just do therapy with traumatized people? And well, we we do therapy with traumatized people, and there's there are some effective non-psychedelic therapies, uh, somatic experiencing and EMDR and uh, Hakomi. There's a number of therapies that can help. Uh, they tend to take a long time and one of the biggest hurdles people have been traumatized is trust. And, you know, it can take years for trauma therapists doing traditional non, say non-psychedelic trauma therapies to make that trusting connection. Mm. But, but say with the MDMA work, we're seeing that happen almost immediately. 
um, which is fantastic and which also, you know, speaks to some of the serious risks of the psychedelic space and boundary violations and sexual boundary violations. And um, so I guess, so yeah, when Will's saying, you know, why are we trying to address trauma with a pill? I don't think any of us are. I don't think anybody on the MAP study or or people, I don't know people on the psilocybin side. I I really don't think anybody's thinking, ooh, we're going to fix PTSD with psilocybin or we're going (laughs) to... you know, fix MDMA, or I'm sorry, fix trauma with this 150 milligram MDMA capsule. Nobody's thinking that. I think what we're thinking is this is a catalyst. Um, Resources are limited. Um, I had a woman on my podcast who talked about her six-year healing journey with EMDR and amazing, amazing recovery. But it was, I don't know, like 200 sessions and Mm. a ton of money and time. And it was brutal slog. It was like an ultra marathon over the Himalayas, but she did it. But we don't have the resources to do that with everybody, nor do most people have the the economic or the just emotional wherewithal to do that kind of multi-year slog for trauma. Uh, and the ones who do, great. But we need we need to get in there quickly and get working on this and that's what's so exciting to me about psychedelics coming online with mental health is that we can get down to business quickly and not you know, not have to spend so much time trying to get past these defenses. Mm. Mm-hmm. One of our, uh, or one of my talk tracks often is around um, just how young we are, mm-hmm. <laughs> how early we are and, science generally like if you want to maybe put a an event on it like when was the first you know double blind you know rct kind of deal Mm -hmm. done Mm -hmm. like that was probably the biggest evolution Mm -hmm. in in our lifetime and that's often the only acceptable science these days right yeah like we can't really take the historical psychedelic literature too well i was talking to a Peter Hendricks from um, University of Alabama, Birmingham is doing the psilocybin for cocaine mm-hmm. study. He's like, I, I just don't know what to do with that data whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. I think you do perhaps, but like the, mm-hmm. the model and how you were trained doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily accept this enormous pile of literature as helpful. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's, you know, I think we can learn from that. I think we can say, well, these things appear to be really helpful Mm -hmm. and they should be prescribable. There's no reason why the legacy of the drug war should let so many more people suffer for so long. Yeah. And we need more tools. We, you know, we're getting at times beaten badly on the field here by this team of the, the mental illness and psychological despair team. And yeah, if there's things that can help us. Um, oh, I wanted to bring up one other thing. Yeah. I was just remembering that, that Will, a couple other things that he brought up in the episode. One is um, he talked about this idea of spiritual emergency versus you know, true psychosis or psychotic illness. And he's, you know, he really poo-pooed the idea that, that there's a bona fide psychotic state. He said, you know, maybe it's really all just like a spiritual emergency or spiritual experience. And he said, you know, quote, you're having a spiritual experience if you say you're having a spiritual experience, which 
That sounds fine, except I I have seen, as anybody who works in psychiatry, seen many people who say things uh, like that that are patently untrue, like um, God's telling me to cut off my penis, or um, uh, I'm hearing a voice saying, and I, it's it sounds very powerful, I need to go downtown and spray bullets in Old Town Square. And um, I mean, the thought that that's, a, I guess that could be like, some demon spirit or Satan or something. But, you know, I, I do think people have spiritual experiences and emergencies that can be very distressing and overwhelming, but that is not what we're talking about with a psychotic break or psychosis. I mean, um, people often, and that that's one of the things that's, I think, so difficult in psychiatry is, is the more ill people get, they lose their insight and judgment. So the most ill people we see often think there's nothing wrong. Mm. So people who come into my office um, who who are pretty sure nothing's wrong, not uncommonly, they're they're in a really serious psychotic state, and they've been brought in by their family or others. And you know, at one point, Will said he said the biggest difference I see between these two groups, the truly psychotic and the spiritual emergency, is class background. That the upper upper class people get to have a spiritual emergency, and lower class has psych, quote unquote psychosis. I, I couldn't disagree more. I mean, I work in Fort Collins, which is one of the more educated places in America. I work with lots of people who have resources and they get psychotic frequently for all sorts of reasons. And it's no spiritual emergency. And because I think the people who are having, you know, bona fide spiritual, spiritual emergencies, they're not showing up at the psychiatrist's office. I mean, they might be showing up uh, at their therapist or at their pastor or with a friend. The people who are coming to my office, you know, are in severe distress or they're so ill that they're causing their family severe distress. So I know the, the anti-psychiatry movement is really anti-diagnosis. And I just, again, I would say we know, hello, we know in psychiatry that our diagnoses are largely syndromes. They're not bona fide diseases, they're syndromes, but that doesn't mean they're not oftentimes deeply dangerous and cause people and or their families horrific distress. And the whole idea, the, the sort of euphemism that, that that's, it's all a spiritual emergency, I think that's, a, that's actually dangerous thinking. Mm. Because... You know, sometimes people are sort of quietly psychotic. They're, I, mean, I think a lot of people are sort of quietly psychotic out there. They're having uh, experiences and perceptions which are not real, but it's not causing them necessarily any serious distress. But, you know, people come in the mental health system or specifically psychiatrists when they're having psychotic symptoms that are causing either they, themselves or other people very great distress. Mm. Um, so... And at one point, you know, Will was even challenging the idea of schizophrenia. And again, I would just go back to, you know, we know, meaning we, we psychiatrists know it is, it is a syndrome. Nobody's saying there's a disease of schizophrenia. It's a syndrome. There's many different paths to it involving probably to toxoplasmosis and herpes virus and cytomegalovirus and, and prenatal insults and genetic predisposition. Um, interestingly, he said, you know, that the major risk factors for uh, schizophrenia diagnosed with poverty and child abuse. That's actually not true. But yeah, I do think there, there's this, a misperception that 
you know, that we psychiatrists think that the DSM is filled with bona fide diseases. No, we know it is a huge um, book filled with subcategories, largely for insurance billing purposes. It's not grounded in like a bona fide nosology. And, you know, we know that. Um, and again, I think people who, psychiatrists who have the time to really know people, we're curious why. Why are you depressed? Why are you having panic? Why are you so numb? Why do you want to die? You know, ultimately, that, that's the most interesting and the most helpful question. Mm. Yeah, the spiritual emergency topic is so political, I guess. It's, um, you know, we have a class, a free class, uh, called spiritual emergence or psychosis. And mm-hmm. like, I, I, I kind of feel bad cause it's like the, there's no clear, you know, I, I can't come up with a clear framework for one or the other. No. Um, but I, th- but I think we need to admit that both poles exist. Um, let me just give you one of a hundred examples I could give. So when yeah. I was in residency, I was working when, uh, started rotation at the partial hospital at Rhode Island hospital. And the attending said, Hey, can you do a quick discharge with this guy? So this guy came in he was nicely dressed and I was doing his discharge paperwork. And, and I looked at him and I said, wait, we met in the ER. He's like, Oh, I don't remember. I was not really in a good state of mind. So here was a guy, he was getting ready to go to his engineering job. He had a tie on. He, he was fine. He was healthy. And, uh, probably eight days before, in the middle of the night, I met him in the ER. I went in to see him. He was naked. He was masturbating and licking the wall and talking about some like spaceship thing mm-hmm. and, and making this weird buzzing noise. And so he's hospitalized. He was put on medication. He went to partial hospital. Eight days later, I see him in a tie looking good and going off to his work. And was that a spiritual emergency? I mean, I don't think so. If that wasn't psychosis, I don't know what was. In fact, you know, most psychotic experiences, people barely remember. There's a weird sort of amnesia that happens both during mania and psychosis that people will have sort of dreamlike kind of almost like an alcohol blackout. Like people mm-hmm. will remember like frames of it, but it's mostly forgotten. Whereas, you know, my sense is a, a bona fide spiritual experience or a spiritual emergency, I think you would remember that. I think those those tend to be deeply uh, both meaningful or frightening, or, or they you're able to recall them. Where a bona fide psychotic episode, people rarely remember much of anything from it. No, I I, I like that, Craig. That's pretty cool. Um, and I think I think there's something there. Um, most people I know that have had some sort of spiritual emergence, they they are they remember it and cherish it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even if it was terrifying, they still cherish it mm-hmm. <laughs> and to be, to be clear, not spiritual emergence. Isn't like, you know, sunshine and rainbows for everybody. It can be horrifying mm-hmm. as horrifying as probably, you know, stuff that can get you hospitalized. Yeah. Spiritual emergence yeah. can't get you hospitalized. It's like no yeah, joke. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think it's okay. And even important that we recognize that, both of those exist, just like we can say mind exists and brain exists. And, you know, I think that Will was really wanting to hold on to one pole of many arguments and not wanting to say, hey, it's complicated and it's gray and 
there's problems with all this and psychedelics are complicated. Psychiatry is complicated. The brain's complicated. And, and isn't that cool? How, isn't that so interesting? And wow, we all got to work together and figure this out and not turn on each other. And, mm. and it's, this work is hard enough already. You know, it, it, you have a lot of people I know that work in mental health, you know, have been vicariously traumatized and I've done a few episodes about, about that on my podcast. And that's definitely been the case with me. I've had eight suicides and two murders and two people threatened to kill me. And one person had to be, interestingly, had to be hospitalized involuntarily for two weeks until he finally told the psychiatrist that he wasn't going to kill me. So it's getting it's interesting. So I have some skin in the game and with mm. this too, that the anti-psychiatry movement is so terribly against involuntary hospitalization. And, and I would say in general... I'm not a huge fan of it either. I do everything I can to not do it. And I think most psychiatrists don't like doing it because it causes a lot of pain for people, but sometimes you have to do it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, like <laughs> the reality of human existence is not super pleasant all the time. And we've got, no. we've got a lot of problems no. that we need to work yeah. on. And, yeah. yeah. Well, I was thinking too, when I was listening, I think it was the first, hmm, I think it was the first Will Hall episode when he was doing a big critique of capitalism. And, you know, I thought I got the little smile on my face and I was thinking of um, Shulgin's work. So Shulgin's, you know, changed the world with his work and it was funded by the DEA and it was funded by his very successful invention. I think of one or two big pesticides. Yep. DuPont, so, I think. If I'm... Yeah, right. So, uh, you know, and ketamine, I'm sure made a lot of money for the drug company that mm. invented that. And, you know, now that I work with ketamine, I think, wow, I hope they did make a lot of money because it's definitely changing people's lives. So yeah, capitalism is messy and psychiatry is messy and, and psychedelics are messy and people are messy. And isn't that okay? Like, can't we just accept that and not default to this sort of pan negativism and finger pointing and blaming and because um, again we're all on the same team we want the same thing we we want people to thrive and we want to dial down psychological despair as much as we can and we want to try to be helpful do you have any advice for people who like um are perhaps like therapists that want better alliances with uh mds mm. Sometimes yeah. it's a you know a messy relationship. I've I've met a number mm. of psychiatrists that I I want nothing to do with and for the rest <laughs> of my life. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. But it's like, how do we handle that? You know, yeah, and do yeah. better. Yeah. Well, I think it is true. Here's another little secret of psychiatry. You know, there's definitely there's a, there's a good chunk of psychiatrists I think like me who went to med school and said, okay, this is the only thing I want to do. I love this. This is my calling. And I, and then I think there's a group who thought, Ooh, I don't want to deal with pap smears and I don't want to deal with this or that. I don't know what I want to do. I guess I'll do this. And then there's a third group, you know, a small group, but I think who are mostly went into psychiatry to try to figure out what's wrong with them. Mm. So, but the, the group one, the people who went into psychiatry because they're truly moved to by it and called to it. That's an increasingly large group. I really believe it is. Even in med school, the 
the percentage of people matching in psychiatry has been going up, up, up oh, every great. year for the past 15 years. So uh, psychiatry is definitely coming back. But yeah, there are, are there are some really bad and weird psychiatrists for sure. So, I, so I guess what I'd recommend to therapists is, you know, you you reach out and you find out who your people are. You know, I've been in Fort Collins now for 15 years, and over the years, um, had many, many, many phone calls with therapists and and struck us some cl- close collegial relationships and friendships with a bunch of them and. And then, you know, and some of the therapists have said, oh, I've tried to call other psychiatrists and they didn't even call me back. And you know, my answer was, wow, I'm sorry. That's that's a big loss for them. But I'm glad that you kept calling and called me or vice versa. So, and, and I will say too, a lot of the people, the psychiatrists who work, you know, in the second or third system of the, the managed care um, med check system or the mental health care system, they're just so swamped trying to see so many people a day that I think trying to collaborate with therapists is overwhelming for them. But I do think people that are doing more of the kind of practice that I'm doing, which is, again, a lot of psychiatrists, a lot of us want to collaborate because you know we need help. I don't know. I mean, I all my people with, with serious childhood trauma, I always get a child or I get a trauma specialist on board. All my people with eating disorders, I get an eating disorder specialist on board. I mean, I, I want to collaborate. I don't want to just be back here by myself. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, you know, again, big, messy system. It's not clear the path forward, mm-hmm. right? It's like, reach out, take risks, talk to these folks. Um, mm-hmm. And hopefully you can get a, a team of allies around you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I feel like the, the impression I get sometimes not all the time because I get to talk to some really cool people. So it's, it's kind of great, but yeah, like doctors, like the, the messy ones who are kind of overwhelmed, they just, mm-hmm. you know, their, their perhaps default is you don't know anything. And I, I don't want to talk to you about this. Mm, yeah. And that's about like the biggest turnoff you can. That is, that's horrible. Yeah. So I think <laughs> scratch those people off your list. Right. Yeah. Um, There's plenty of interesting people that are, that are cool yeah, out there. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say to therapists, just keep reaching out and some number of psychiatrists are going to want to collaborate and to be happy to hear from you. And don't take it personally, the ones you don't hear back from. It's that this probably they're just drowning in work and stress and they're just trying to get through their day. Right, right. Yeah. And like, uh, I think a lot of folks kind of fantasize about this Kaiser Permanente model being like super advanced, but mm-hmm. I think I think we can do better. Like I think even with just a loose association and sharing data, mm-hmm. like we can do really well like without having a monster hospital system. It's just kind yeah, of like got to be carefully totally done. Agree. Yeah, yeah. This has been super fun and interesting. Yeah, yeah I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much, Joe. Yeah, you got it. Um, Craig, you, do you have a website or anything you might want to share? Yeah, my website is craigheacockmd.com. Great. C-R-A-I-G, heacockmd.com. And can also access back from the abyss there and um back from the abyss is also on all the podcast platforms perfect yeah well craig thank you very much and i I hope we can do this again maybe in person someday yeah it was really great to see this thank you